The Colorado Business Roundtable unapologetically tells the story that business is a force for good in our community, featuring conversations with thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government. Welcome to A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. And I'm Debbie Brown, president of Colorado Business Roundtable. You know, if you're a regular listener, we bring together really interesting thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government, all under the lens of our mission that business is a force for good. And certainly uh, finding a good job, having a great pathway of opportunity is a really, um, you know, is instrumental in making sure the lives of Coloradans are better every day. And that leads me to today's guest. I'm, I'm very excited to have this conversation. It's way past due with Tamara Ryan, who is the CEO of the Women's Bean Project here in Colorado, a social enterprise providing transitional employment in its food manufacturing business to women attempting to break the cycle of chronic unemployment and poverty. And also, Tamara is the 2023 Course Fellow for Economic Mobility at the Common Sense Institute. So she wears several hats, and we're going to talk about uh, both hats today. So welcome, Tamara. It's great to be here, Debbie. So first of all, um, I knew you, I've known you for many years as a leader here in Colorado, working on issues of economic mobility through your day job. And now you've got this exciting opportunity to really reach a new audience, perhaps with some specific research talking about economic mobility and how executives, um, leaders in lots of different avenues, lots of different verticals can take advantage of this research that you're that you're spearheading. But before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of that, I want to know more about I want to know more about you. What's your story? What's your personal and business story? How did you end up in this role today? Well, it's not a very logical path. I'm a fifth generation Coloradan, so I grew up in Colorado Springs and went to CU undergrad and uh, then left because I needed to see what other places were like. I think when you grow up in such a fabulous place as Colorado, you think the sun shines everywhere every day and things like that. So I did a second degree. I have two science degrees, and that doesn't make any sense for where I landed, but that master's degree gave me the opportunity to work for a subsidiary of Rush Medical Center in Chicago. And I did that for about 10 years. Uh, we took ideas out of the medical center and took them to market. And through that, I became a marketer. And so I was I did marketing and business development for a number of years in private education and also for a tech company. I had moved back to Colorado and I was looking for a connection to the local community. So I started volunteering at Women's Bean Projects and really thought of it as a marketer's dream come true. There's this business, and the better the business does, the more women lives can be changed. So I uh, volunteered for about six months. Position of CEO came open, and I tried to talk my girlfriend into applying for the job. And according to Sarah, I went on and on about what a great place Women's Bean Project was until finally she said, if you think it's so great, why don't you do it? That was 20 years ago, believe it or not. And that was definitely 20 years. If you look back on your career, a lot of times you see forks in the road. And certainly for me, that was one. And yet at the same time, it made a lot of sense in that I wanted to be connected to the community. And I really believe that when you change a woman's life, you change her family's life. So over the last 20 years, I've gotten to see the impact of, for instance, mass incarceration of women and how we judge women more harshly than we judge men for their past mistakes. I've watched as women with help move into the workforce for the long term and become the kinds of mothers that we all hope they can be. Seeing all of those issues and seeing how 
our community cannot afford for people to be marginalized from the workforce really helped me start to form some opinions. The fellowship at CSI was an opportunity to begin to shed light on some things that I had observed over the last 20 years and hopefully change some opinions and change some minds about what we can do to improve economic mobility for people in our communities. Yeah, that's a great lead in, Tamara, because I think sometimes, you know, and this might be just my bias, but I think about researchers or folks who are in kind of the research world sometimes don't have practical experience, like on the ground, um, you know, they're not executing the same plans that they're recommending. And so when I heard that you were leading this effort, I thought, oh my gosh, how perfect, because you can do both. You can have kind of the critical analytical research, but yet test it with your decades of experience in leading something that's had such a profound influence. So I bet I bet you're thinking your, to yourself the same thing, like what an amazing combination. Yes, and every one of the things I want to talk about really start with, I wonder why this is happening. I, I wonder why so many women were going, you know, were coming to Women's Bean Project from previous incarceration. Or I wonder why women struggle or decide not to keep a job. And my view is women, but I really think that a lot of the challenges that women face are, you know, equally challenges for men. You know, if someone has a former, uh, a history of incarceration, the incidence of unemployment is 27% for somebody who's formerly incarcerated, which is higher than the unemployment rate during the Great Depression. I like facts and I like to call attention to facts that I think people may not realize and maybe would change somebody's mind if they actually knew the data. Tell us more. Give us some context regarding the labor shortage. We talk about workforce as being the number one issue facing employers here in Colorado, whether it's private sector or public sector employers. It's still it's the number one issue. But give us context on the report, um, what you're seeing in terms of unprecedented labor shortage and just just sort of overall context. Well, it's kind of crazy right now. We have the greatest labor shortage I think we've ever documented. There are currently 2.7 jobs for every person who's unemployed. So every person who's technically looking for employment, there are 2.7 jobs for those people, which I think is amazing when you think about the fact that we were so concerned with coming out of the pandemic and how high the unemployment rate went during the pandemic. The fact that we've not only recovered those jobs, but now we have a shortage. And I think what happens in that environment is then we're only looking at people who are unemployed and unemployed officially, like they're officially looking. And I think what ends up happening is we overlook people who perhaps are marginalized from the workforce, who with some focus and assistance could actually get into the workforce, who are ready. And so that's a lot of what we wanted to talk about in this um, report was that we have people in our state who are ready for employment. And we cannot, historically, as a state, we've relied on in-migration, people, well-educated people coming into our state. Well, our in-migration has dropped, and it's expected to continue to drop till 2050, which is a big deal because how we've traditionally solved our employment problem is not how we will solve it going forward. Another really interesting thing that we found in this study was that there is a pretty huge skills gap. And 49% of jobs in Colorado require more than a high school diploma, but less than a four-year degree. But only 35% of our population has that. So when you look at all these different things that we 
we don't have enough people looking, that we don't have the education that we need, and we don't have pe- new people coming in. When you think about all of those factors, we've got to look at them and look at how we could solve those problems. And what's tell me too, what's the report called? When was it released? And I'm I'm looking at kind of the overall, you know, how you can talk about kind of the the big picture loss in annual GDP. Yeah, was calculated, but just wanted to make sure I had the name of the report correct. And we'll, we'll put well, it with the podcast as well. Yeah, it was released in July of 2023. And it's called Colorado's Workforce Woes Should Spell Opportunity for Economic Mobility. And people can find that at, at commonsenseinstitute.co.org. Perfect, perfect. And when you talk about it's interesting thinking about these barriers to unemployment. Why aren't we matching that correctly? What are you seeing in terms of the barriers and how do they disproportionately affect certain segments of the population? Because I always think about how do we problem solve this, which is part of the report as well. Well, and so I think it's first opening our minds to the fact that we do have people in our state who could fill at least some of these jobs. And that includes people who have documented disabilities but are still able to work. So they're not institutionalized and um, and they could at least work part-time. It's people with um, disabilities who are uh, veterans. Uh, it's people who were formerly incarcerated. People with childcare challenges. So one of the biggest things, the she session is basically over, but with the exception of the fact that the pandemic is mostly gone, all the other problems that caused the she session are still uh, still exist. And one of those things is a shortage of childcare. Fifty one percent of our state is in a childcare desert. And then, you know, when you think about educational attainment, so for, I talked about the skills gap that we have. We need to really think about how do we bring people to the point where they're ready for these jobs, both educational attainment, but also teed up to do the additional training and education. So you asked earlier what the GDP impact was. In this year alone, the GDP impact of all of these jobs being vacant is $46 billion. It seems like it should get get our attention. That seems like a lot of money to me. That should. That should. It kind of, uh, you know, it's almost too big, right? Like, how do you wrap your hands around that? Can you give us some context on how that was calculated? What was put into that uh, in terms of the implications for Colorado's economy? How do you how do you come up with a number like that? Well, a great thing about Common Sense Institute and being a fellow there is I've got a team of researchers and an economist behind me to calculate these big numbers. And so CSI has a modeling tool that they use called REMI, R-E-M-I, in which they put the basically the opportunity lost by having all of these positions open. And that's where the $46 billion comes into play. Yeah, that makes sense, Tamara. I've utilized the economists as ESI as well, Chris Brown. And, uh, you know, I think there's a there's a couple of economists now who um, really can understand and predict what decisions have impact on our economy going forward. So um, that's so valuable when you think about um, not only the, the GDP loss, but also thinking about the people whose lives are, could be transformed if they have the right opportunity. It's hard to put a price tag on that. Um, but that certainly is, you know, I know more where kind of your heart is. Like, how do we help these individuals rise to their full potential with additional mobility? When we think about those folks, you know, and I'm picturing lots of conversations we've had this summer, we hosted our own future of work 
event, um, talking about increasing opportunities, eliminating barriers. What types of innovative approaches have you outlined in the report from employers, educational institutions, workforce systems? What should folks know from the report? What can they do? What's an action statement? There are a couple of really interesting things we talk about in the report that I, I believe are worth considering further. One is that in the state of Washington, they have a program called IBEST, that's the acronym. And in that program, they that exists within community colleges and credentialing programs at a community college level, they have two instructors for all the students in the classroom. One instructor is focused on math and reading skills that are relevant to the credentialing program. And it's a way, and then the second instructor is teaching the credential program material. It is a way to fill gaps in educational attainment and math and reading skills. We know that across the country, we have low math and reading skills, sixth grade reading level roughly, but apprenticeships and other credentialing programs typically require a high school diploma and assume that at least a 10th grade reading level is is attained. So that's a really interesting program that I think we should look more closely at because it also provides some wraparound services at the same time, which I think is another aspect that is really important. What we know is that workforce development programs that are effective do more than just training and do more than just help people build resumes. They also provide support services, which leads me to our second recommendation, which is a model that is used in Utah, it's called the one door policy and all workforce development and human services. So food stamps and welfare programs, all are accessed through one point of entry for all individuals. And I can tell you, this is where my personal, my experience at Women's Bean Project comes in. I watch as the women work so hard to navigate all the different systems and they have case managers for every single thing. And often those things are in conflict with one another. This one door policy is a way to align all the interests and actually be much more efficient in terms of how we deliver both workforce development and human services. So those are just a couple of things that we point out and they're things that are proven other states and they're doing quite well. Yeah, I love that. I think about, uh, you know, every state is its own system, uh, you know, competitive, competitive environment. And so what are the other states doing that we want to copy? What are some other states doing that we want to stay away from? Uh, I get to brainstorm with other roundtables around the country. There's only about 20 of us in different states of um, high economic activity but it's fun to kind of steal best practices. So I love, it feels, it feels like I've heard Utah a couple of times in the last couple of weeks that they're doing pretty groundbreaking work. Yeah, and uh, the American Enterprise Institute actually just published a toolkit for implementing this one-door policy, uh, literally right after our report came out. So that was a great validation of the fact that maybe it actually is worth considering. It probably is, absolutely. Um, Tamara, tell me again, I think it's fun when you read the, I hope folks go and read the report. There's a lot of details, a lot of graphs, a lot of, uh, like you said, predictive modeling. What's the why behind the report? What would you want people to know, you know, especially business leaders and, and executives who might be listening to our podcast? What's the why that you want them to take away? Well, I think that we cannot thrive as a state if we're leaving people behind and so when we look at the fact that we have 2.7 jobs for every person technically looking for employment, that tells me that we have a whole pool of people who would 
individually benefit, but for with whom the state would benefit by helping them move into employment. And so I think that, you know, it's it's one of those ideas that all boats rise with the tide, that we can be better as a state when we're making sure that everyone in our state has an opportunity both for education and training, but also for employment so that uh, we are all um, benefiting from this kind of crazy economic environment. Yeah, I, I appreciate that so much. And I think your voice is needed more and more for amplification. I think when we were in the middle of conversations coming out of COVID and all the relief money was was getting ready to be sent, you know, wave after wave of federal money to Colorado, uh, you know, my worry was I would we'd, we'd all wake up five years later and not know where the money went, really, or not know whose lives were benefited. And so to to bring more thought leaders who, again, who have that practical experience, understand the problem, but then have a vision for implementation, you know, hopefully you're at all those tables to help, uh, you know, guide some of that money to really productive use. Well, I hope so, too. And I I think it bothers me also when we have dollars that are not being spent effectively. And I know that's the case. I know that's the case with our workforce development dollars. I know it's the case with uh, our human services dollars. And it's not uh, the onus I don't think should be a place as much on the recipients and more. It should be placed more on how we implement those dollars. And are they really having their intended effect? And then that responsibility being shared. I think we have a tendency to push that responsibility for efficacy on the person who's receiving the dollars versus as a, as a, a state and as, a, you know, but all of our state institutions and as a community really owning that together. No, I agree. And I probably, I put a lot more um, responsibility on the folks who set up the guidelines for the money. I wasn't even thinking about recipients, you know, on, on figuring out where is it best utilized and how do we really help people as opposed to spend it on the systems, you know, so yeah. to speak. So, Well, I think a lot of times the conversation goes to work requirements, for instance, which I'm a fan of. And I think work requirements are a, a great way to ensure that what we ultimately want to have happen, which is move people into the workforce, occurs. However, what gets overlooked in those work requirement conversations is the fact that there are many things within the system that create disincentives to work. It's like saying, we require that you do this, and at the same time, we're going to pull the rug out from under you. And then it's your fault that we've pulled the rug out from under you. And so those are the kinds of things I really do, as as you talked about, I really do want to shed a light on because I don't know that when it all the way down gets implemented that that anybody intended for those things to happen. It's just the ways the policies are written or and how the policies get implemented can be problematic. And again, and a reason why your real world experience coupled with the research is so critical. So, Tamara, just to wrap us up, is there anything else you want to say about the report? Um, let people know where to find it. Any kind of other big picture closing comments on that? And then and then I have a surprise for you. <laughs> uh, well, they can go to commonsenseinstituteco.org. And then there is a drop down where there are reports. And my report is under jobs and economy. And I hope people will go and look at it. I think that there's a lot of really interesting data in there. Uh, and we'll make sure we highlight it as well. Um so thanks so much for joining us. We always end with a couple lightning round questions. So hopefully that's okay. I'm going to, you know, it's nothing that complicated. I, I laugh too. I come from kind of a business marketing background. So I always say like no math questions, you know, I wasn't a finance <laughs> major, but 
Um, would love to know, the first quick question for you is, what is your favorite powerhouse happy hour or lunch spot? Well, now that, so Women's Bean Project just moved to the west side of town. And so I've been exploring all the places along Broadway. Uh, so I've been going to Postino a lot lately. I love that. I love that. And then final question for you, what is your best advice for someone else to get a seat at the table? What I've found is most effective is getting my facts straight. So bringing some emotion to it, certainly you've got to have a reason why you're there, but making sure you don't just bring the emotion, but you bring the facts is the best way to bring us, you know, come to the table. And also, I think being respectful of the fact that uh, everyone has different opinions and so being, getting a seat at the table doesn't mean that everyone else at the table is going to agree with you. But I think coming with a, a level head and yet some emotion uh, backed by facts is a great way to do that. Great tips. Well, thank you, Tamara, for joining. Uh, we're excited to continue to be an ally of your good work and of Common Sense Institute. Uh, we've worked closely with that organization in the past and excited that you're lending your voice to the research going forward, especially on a topic as important as economic mobility. So thanks for joining today. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining us today on this episode of A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. It's been great being with you. A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown is a production of the Colorado Business Roundtable. You can find this episode, a listing of our upcoming events, and more information about our organization at cobrt.com.